How many G's is that after refining? Well, maybe uh, three refuelers. We'll burn through that in two lunars. Sweet Joe, will somebody please tell me what's happening to this place? We outcrowded. All right. The only thing that is important is the tattooed girl. We don't spare any go juice finding her. We don't waste it anywhere else. You cancel all those tractor pulls and all that stuff until later. You got it? Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minutes 65 and 66, which begin with four feet nine inches of black stuff and end with the mariner watering his tomato plant. We kick off this week at the bottom of a tube with Dennis Hopper peeking through the top of it. This is the deacon speaking to the depth gauge there in the tank. And I think we get one of my favorite shots of this movie right off the bat, which is the depth gauge standing in his little boat, and the room is completely inky black, except for that little shaft of light shining down onto his boat. It does illuminate him gloriously. Mm -hmm. I would like to muse for a moment on the depth gauge's living conditions. (laughs) So... The only time we see him is now he's in this boat. He is quite pale, but he seems in good humor. It's a good way to put it. So I have to imagine, all right, does he live down there full time? Which I expect, yes, he does live down there full time. Does he have a little living space? Does he have any light down there at all? I'm going to venture a guess that his living space is the boat that he's floating in. The light that he has down there is probably from when the hatch is opened. I would like to think that every day, maybe two or three times a day, someone comes open the hatch and lowers down some food for him. I really hope that's the case, and that he doesn't live in perpetual darkness down there, floating on a lake of oil. He does seem a bit gremlin-like. Yeah, I think that's good. Like a creature that has adapted to live in the darkness. A little golem-like. Boat. Yes, a little golem-like. He's, I guess, admirably devoted to the cause of the smokers in that he is able to, like you say, keep his spirits up and not be completely... Drowned in the dismal existence that he exists in. Yeah. He also (laughs) doesn't seem phased by the light. Nope. If he lived in darkness, he would be shrinking away from it. I have to assume that that means he's used to making the adjustment. Mm -hmm. He's comfortable in the dark. But this shaft of light that he, from time to time, stands under and looks up to doesn't bother him. And they must have already had the hatch open and been conversing with him because they knew that they needed to go get the deacon to have this conversation again. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the deacon opened up the hatch for the first time that day. He'd already been 
talking to somebody. Yeah, if they don't communicate directly through the hatch, there's some way that he can get messages up. And maybe because we saw last week he was shouting up through the darkness, hey, open up the hatch. That could be how he communicates and they hear him yelling, hey, open the hatch. And so they go get the deacon. I don't know. We don't get to see it. But it would be nice if there was some sort of tube that he can call up through. The kind that you find on some children's playgrounds where it's just a funnel attached to a tube and you yell through the tube and it yeah. sound travels. Yeah. I am reminded of Barter Town's communication situation where it feels modern because it is a viewer as well as a microphone, but mm -hmm. it's not. It's all done with mirrors and whatnot. It kind of feels like that. This is the ideal situation that Auntie would want between her and Master Blaster. Very true, because they are rather parallel. The energy source is down below being managed by an individual, but in this case, he is completely subservient. Mm -hmm. He is happy to be there and has no ambitions whatsoever. And that is how Auntie would have liked Master Blaster. Mm -hmm. The deacon calls down that he is a busy man. He wants to know what the depth gauge is yelling about. And the depth gauge reports that they are down to exactly four feet, nine inches of black stuff. I tried so hard to find some sort of diagram for the Exxon Valdez because this is a ship that existed in real life that we are basing this on to try and figure out, okay, what is the layout of the storage tanks in the Exxon Valdez? What kind of compartmentalization are we working with? And I was unable to find anything specific like that, which really surprised me. Although I was able to find out that the Ds has a capacity of 1.48 million barrels of crude oil, which works out to roughly 235,301,196 liters or 62,160,000 gallons of crude oil. Okay. We talked a little bit about this off mic. Mostly due to your surprise that you were unable to find a diagram, and I was also surprised that you couldn't find a diagram. Without a diagram of the Ds or an oil tanker, I picture in my head a diagram of the Titanic. Mm -hmm. Because there is similar verbiage used when describing it, like compartments. Yeah. Like tank-like. And I was able to find some cutaway diagrams that show oil tankers with large bulkheads splitting up their tanks, which is smart because you don't want massive quantities of oil sloshing back and forth across the entire length of a ship. Right. That would just cause all sorts of momentum problems. Yeah, certainly. That leads me to think that the open spaces that we have seen so far, where a lot of the people exist, where a lot of the work is going on, that's probably previously oil tank space. Yeah, I like that. Those large open spaces, there's no use for those on a ship unless it's a tanker of now, some kind. Now or I, another cargo space, but I, it's a tanker, so. I did see diagrams where it shows oil tankers with generic cargo space, large bays that open from the top and then you can drop stuff down into them. Yeah. We don't really see that on this version of the Ds. This movie version of the Ds is technically a lot smaller than the real version, but I like your idea that 
all of these open spaces, these multiple levels, these girders and steel platforms that we're looking at, they drained the oil out of those, moved on to the next tank, and oh, now there's all this empty space for people to occupy. I like yes. that. But we also have to consider that at the end of the movie, when the Mariner drops the flare down into the oil vat, the pipe is at the far end of the room and the flames rush across. So I'm still not quite sure exactly how large this space is. The problem with the Exxon Valdez that I was able to find is that it is a single-hulled ship, and as soon as the reef punctured through the hull, all the oil had nothing protecting it from rushing out of the boat. That seems like an exceptionally bad idea. Oh, absolutely. That's straight-up Titanic folly. Yeah, I know that oil and moving oil around the planet is still a relatively new idea. We've only been doing it maybe a bit over 100 years. And that's really not that long. That sounds about right. And especially when the Exxon Valdez happened, we were even newer to it than we are now. Yeah, it just seems but, irresponsible to build a ship with a single hull. Right. Just because you haven't experienced an oil spill yet doesn't mean a single hull vessel isn't a bad idea. Because it just seems like common sense to me. Why would you put so little material and so little layers and variety of material between oil and the ocean? As the profession of engineering, as far as shipbuilding is concerned, has progressed over the years, people have realized, oh, yes, steel is an incredibly durable and strong material, but when you put it up against something like ice or a coral reef moving mm -hmm. at a certain speed those materials will puncture straight through your seemingly strong material. No matter how fancy or smart we get, nature is fancier and smarter. We end the conversation with the depth gauge with the deacon spitting on him? So I was going to posit some sort of ridiculous reason as to why the deacon would do this. There's an episode of Doctor Who where the doctor shows up to some space party and he meets a tree creature and they're like, oh, did you bring a gift to the party? And he's like, I gift you the air from my lungs. And he breathes on this tree person. They're like, ooh, how intimate. So I'm like, ooh, is that what the deacon's doing? He's giving the depth gauge some moisture straight from his mouth. And I'm like, there's no way that's the case. It's got to be a Dennis Hopper thing. That does really feel like a Dennis Hopper thing. Like you put Dennis Hopper at the top of a pipe like this with any sort of great distance down. <laughs> Like, at the end of the day, he's kind of kiddish. My first thought was also a religious context of <laughs> a benevolent act. Mm -hmm. Here is a piece of me for you. Because the depth gauge says thank you. Yes, he does. I am very grateful for the editor and director who chose not to show us the spit landing. Yeah. <laughs> I watched it a couple times like wait did I just miss it was it really quiet did it already land by the time we switch back to the depth gauge it's not there I can't find it and I am grateful that I don't know where it landed you hear it plop in the oil but oh, that's you do it. oh okay there's a quick little sound effect plop okay I'm good with that popping up out of the tank to the deacon and his men I'm shocked by how many boxes are behind them of booze and canned meat. They really packed every shot in the Exxon Valdez with boxes of stuff. Which is brilliant from a set dressing point of view because it answers questions about 
how they live, how they survive. It also fills the visual space cheaply. There are just boxes. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be filled with anything. Perhaps they are filled with a bit of sand or rocks just to help keep them in place so they don't knock over super easy. But it's incredibly effective at making the scene feel lived in. Yeah. I also love the detail that some of them are alcohol boxes because the Nord has grabbed himself a bottle. Oh, yeah. And is a little sloshy. (laughs) Anytime the Nord is on the Ds, he is a little sloshy. Yeah, that's how he survives. But the Deacon is more concerned about how much go juice they will get, how many gallons of it they will have after refining. It's four feet, nine inches of black stuff, which according to the ledger guy is maybe three refuelers. And considering that they've already lost one refueler, the situation seems a little desperate, which makes sense. It was an emergency. They called the deacon down for this. That does feel appropriate that he was called down. And the deacon agrees. It feels a little tropey, although I can't think of any specific examples that the head boss is called in for a problem. They present the problem and the head boss is like, this isn't a problem for me. Go fix it. (laughs) Why did you drag me all the way down here for this stupid thing? But no, he's taking it seriously. He Mm -hmm. hears the problem. He confers with his advisors about what that means for them. And then he makes decisions and makes appropriate changes to their lifestyle so that they can better meet their ultimate goal. Yeah, because the doctor says they'll (sighs) burn through that in only two months. His leadership skills in this scene. Are pretty good. (laughs) Laying it out like that, I'm like, yeah, he's doing a good job of leading his people right here. He often does a decent job leading his people. Did you catch him shouting, sweet Joe, before he says, will somebody please tell me what's happening to this place? I didn't. Oh, sweet Joe. I love it. Joe Hazelwood, born September 24th, 1946, is an American sailor. He was the captain of the Exxon Valdez during its 1989 oil spill. He was accused of being intoxicated, which contributed to the disaster, but he was cleared of that charge in his 1990 trial after witnesses testified that he was sober around the time of the accident. Hazelwood was convicted of a lesser charge, negligent discharge of oil, which is a misdemeanor, He was fined $50,000 and sentenced to 1,000 hours of community service. And we will get to see a portrait of him later on in this movie. And it seems that he has become the patron saint of the Ds. Okay, that feels very appropriate. I've read somewhere that all of the boxes of alcohol scattered around the Ds is a sort of wry wink at the rumor that Joe Hazelwood was drunk during the accident. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> but it is important to remember that he was cleared of that charge. <laughs> the deacon is lamenting the state of things. He says, will somebody please tell me what's happened to this place? And the Nord is quick to offer his observation. We outgrowed it. I had to check your outline for this because I was watching the minute. I'm like, what did he say? Oh... And I had to check. I'm like, he outgrowed it. And then I noticed the bottle in his hand. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like, oh, okay. Okay. 
he's spending his time here getting sloppy. And he wasn't before. So I think he didn't grab that bottle until he got to this room. Like, oh, look at all these boxes. Yeah. Like you can see specifically a Shmirnoff box right behind the deacon. So yeah, I think when they got to this room, the Nord was like, oh, yes, please, grabbed himself a bottle. Yeah, he's second in command. He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. I can't help but think that a useful thing for the smokers to have done would be to take all of the materials from those atolls they sink and incorporate them into the Ds in order to create some sort of, I don't know, floating megacity. That way they would have more room to spread out, create their own island in order to fix the overpopulation issue. Yeah, because the Nord's right. From what we have seen on the Ds, they have outgrown it. It's so crowded. And I know their standards of living are... Of a certain level. Squalid. Yes. So just because they have more room to spread out doesn't mean they'll do it more cleanly. There'll probably still be piles of trash everywhere. But the close quarters does accentuate their cleanliness standards. I think it would be amazing to see a structure in which all of these tattered bits of atoll surround the Exxon Valdez and... Through some sort of strange engineering, the boat is lifted up out of the water by these structures. So you essentially get a large floating, maybe not pyramid, maybe it's more of a cone shape, but the smoker's citadel is like this large floating mountain that looms up on atolls and swallows it. I'm going back to mortal engines. I can't help it. <laughs> that is quite the imagery it does remind me of paintings and pictures from childhood sunday school of noah's ark sitting on the top of a mountain mm -hmm. sort of thing or imagine Minas Tirith from the lord of the rings where you've got the different tiers of the city and then you've got that one jutting part coming out from the mountain yes and the jutting part that would be the d's and then all the tiers would be bits of old atolls and that looming up over the horizon, how incredibly intimidating that would be. <laughs> that imagery of like a tiered conical city is a bit common. It's also the shape of Avatar's Bossing Say. There is no war in Bossing Say. Nope. But uh, yeah, that's a that's a ringed city. Yes. So that shape does seem to be a thematic element. But all day dreaming about different shapes and sizes of smoker settlement is not important because the only thing that is important is the tattooed girl. They can't spare any goju's finding her. Once again, I gotta point out his leadership skills. He has been told that their way of life is no longer sustainable, that their location, they can't stay here indefinitely. It's like, okay, well, this is how we're gonna fix that. Yeah, the deacon is reacting to the news of Enola and her tattoo leading to Dryland in the way that Helen wishes the elders of the Atoll had reacted to that tattoo. Right. Like, kind of matter-of-factly. Like, okay, well, this is something that we want. Let's devote our resources to it. Mm -hmm. Let's make it a priority. And now that he's been told resources are dwindling, sacrificing in other places so that they can still pursue that goal. Mm -hmm. To the deacon, Dryland is not a myth. And he is willing to sacrifice all of the tractor pulls and other stuff 
I love this introduction of the tractor pull idea. Like, do they have tractors on the Ds? Like, I guess they have to. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to call it a tractor pull, you got to do it with tractors. <laughs> I love the imagery. It feels very county fair New England. It also delights me that recreational activities are part of the culture. Well, yeah. That they allow resources, precious, non-renewable fuel sources to be used for recreation. That delights me. That's a society. That is civilization. It was, I want to say Nero, who pacified the people with distractions like feasts and parties and things of that nature. I can't think of it off the top of my head exactly Uh, what people referred to that as. But when you've got a large population like this of unruly characters, you can give them food and water, you can give them cigarettes, but you also need to find other ways to make sure that they aren't bored enough that they start thinking. Mm, Very good point. Which is why every time we've seen a common area here on the Ds, you have seen smokers in the act of making ammunition cutting off pieces of metal, melting them down, refilling guns, doing stuff. Like, sure, we've seen a couple of smokers that are lounging about, but for the most part, everybody has a task and they are busy at that task. You don't have smokers sitting around waxing philosophical about maybe the deacon isn't right about everything. I love that. You've taken this idea that everybody has a job to do, everybody participates in society, and given it a sinister dictator spin, which is, I think, very legitimate. But it's a reminder that while the deacon is showing good leadership qualities, he still is the leader of a fanatic society. I'm not sure I'd call it a cult. In a later minute, he refers to the population of the Ds as his parish. He is a military leader. He is a religious leader. He's the leader of the community, but we don't know exactly by what right he rules this community. He probably claims divine right, like a pope or a king. And if the people were ever to get tired of that, they could rise up. They could pull a French Revolution decapitate the king and fall deeper into chaos, I'm sure, depending on who's leading that revolution. But for the most part, the deacon has a good grip through his underbosses on the entire population as a whole. I don't see him as a benevolent leader, certainly, but I also don't see him as an outright malevolent leader. No, it's a cult of personality. He drives through the population on his way to places and he tosses out cigarettes and he offers encouragement. He calls everybody cousin. The whole idea of his rule is that he is liked because he is seen as a powerful figure and everybody adores him, even though they're all living in abject squalor. But then again, pretty much everybody on Waterworld is living in abject squalor. Yeah, I'm not sure the Deacon has it much better. The smokers don't have the monopoly on dingy, dirty living. As the Deacon is making his declarations of conservation and focus... He is lighting himself a cigarette. And we are all watching that match. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen to that match? Reminds me of a scene. This is really obscure, so I apologize. 
my mother will get this reference. If nobody else does, my mother will understand what I'm about to say. <laughs> so there used to be this show, might have been on Disney, I can't remember, called Avonlea. And it was a slice of life serial based on the world of Anna Green Gables. And it took place well after Anne's time. Colleen Dewhurst, who played Marilla Cuthbert in the original Anna Green Gables, she was still alive at that point and would sometimes show up. Mm -hmm. And then she passed soon after. Anywho, there was this scene where two kids, a boy and a girl, were sitting on the stoop of the general store. And the boy, he was like, I don't know, 11, 12 lit a cigarette and the girl was like what are you doing you can't do that she grabs the match from him does a quick like flick with her wrist to blow it out but it doesn't blow out all the way but she doesn't see that so she flicks it with her wrist to blow it out and then tosses it to the side well it didn't blow out and it landed in a box of fireworks okay and so the fireworks then all go off that's what this moment reminded me of gotcha <laughs> the deacon is so cavalier with how he tosses this lit match towards the opening that leads down into the crude oil tank. And thank goodness the doctor is very quick to not only grab the match, but then swing the hatch closed. The look on his face. <laughs> it's priceless. It's not overt. There is not an expression on his face. It's more like there is no expression on his face. But I read and I feel relief, exasperation, and oh my gosh, in his face. He can't even believe he can't that even. he had to do that. I can't even. And of all of them, he's not the one who should have been lunging because we get a real good look in this chunk of minutes of the tank attached to his chest. Mm -hmm. It's not oxygen running through there. It is various drugs mm -hmm. that he can tailor to his particular needs and his particular mood. So I have no idea what's in that tank, but no flames should be anywhere near him. If it's pressurized gas, yeah, it really shouldn't. Chances are that it is either flammable or an accelerant. <laughs> but he is the one who is quick enough. He was quite quick. That was a great catch. As soon as the match leaves the deacon's hands, the doctor is beginning to reach and he dives because he realizes that the trajectory is not quite within his grasp. But he catches that match just as it's about to fly past the rim of that opening. Was it going to go in or was it going to go past? Oh, it was going to go in. Okay, that's Based what I on thought. where that's the doctor's fist is when it closes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he basically lunges and lands on the lid. Mm -hmm. And then just kind of turns that motion into pushing the lid back in place. And we cut straight from the doctor to a couple of establishing shots of the trimaran sailing around. And it seems that the mariner has been able to fix his filter. Yes, he has. So we see him adding his own urine. And a moment later, Helena and Enola rush in from the side with urgency, which seems a little odd. If you're holding a cup of your own pee. You're in an urgent position? Yeah. Okay. I'm not the kind of person that if I have a cup of my own pee that I'd want to hang around with it. If I know it's going to go in somewhere like a filter, I'm willing to hand it over quickly. Yeah. I really like this scene because 
they're working together to accomplish a positive end. There is no hostility and very little attitude. A little bit of attitude comes in at the end with the Mariner, but for the most part, their tone with each other is downright pleasant (laughs) and very curious and not accusatory and informative. I just really like it. If they could behave like this all the time, I would actually enjoy their scenes. So as I mentioned earlier in an episode, this scene is not in the theatrical cut. They did not deem it necessary in the final edit. But I appreciate how for the people watching the extended cut, you get to see that he does fix the filter, that they do have a source of emergency clean water to drink. I still don't like the Mariner's slavish devotion to a filter system because as Helen asks, why don't you use Sea Hydro? And he says, it's too hard on the filters. And all I can think of is, why don't you set up some sort of still? Be so much more reliable. Yeah, I do appreciate the addressing kind of the elephant in the room. (laughs) You are surrounded by water and you have a purifier. Why don't you have unlimited water? Helen is the voice of the audience right now. Yes, she is. So I appreciate that being addressed. And his reasoning, I didn't look it up. So this is just an assumption on my part. His reasoning does seem accurate. Salt is rough on everything that it touches. Mm -hmm. So I can easily imagine that it is hard on the filters. Yeah. Which is why if you set up a solar still, you wouldn't have that problem. I found a snazzy little gadget Oh, as I was clicking around. I think I'm in love with it. It's (laughs) called the Ecomax EMAMSSM Aquamate Inflatable Solar Still slash Desalinator. So picture in your mind a Hershey's Kiss. Okay. So what it is, you've got an inflatable inner tube in the middle and... The center is where water evaporates up through, and the Hershey Kiss shape of the inflatable top directs water down to a reservoir around the outside edge of that inner tube. So you just have it float there, and the sunlight goes through the clear top, heats up the water in the center of the inner tube, it evaporates up, hits the dome, flows down to the edges, and then you've got that reservoir on the outside edge. Oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. You don't even need like another vessel. You just put it out on the water. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh, how much is it? (laughs) $215. For an inner tube? Well, it's a specialized piece of equipment. It's It's... a highly engineered inner tube. Yeah. Okay, well, I do love it. I do love it a lot. And I have to admit that at recording, this is still pre-Christmas, even though this doesn't come out to like, I don't know, you know, 2022. Um, This episode comes out in March. Thank you very much. (laughs) Well, we're so far ahead. I just assumed. I did put neodymium magnets on my Christmas list for the post-apocalypse. And I was hoping that that was reasonably priced that you could put on your Christmas list. Considering how much boating we don't do, I could never justify. But, but, but considering the high likelihood of the future of this planet, that water levels will be rising, certainly not to the point of water world, but rising. Mm -hmm. 
having a solar still that is not mechanical in any way, that is just like ready to go like that, would be handy. Just like neodymium magnets. Mm-hmm. Okay, I can understand that. Yeah, you just pack it away in your camping things. I mean, that's why we have camping buckets, right? For the post-apocalypse. Yeah. The thing I like about this particular product is that it does pack down into a very small package, maybe five by seven, probably a little bit bigger than that. But you pull it out of the packaging, you blow it up, and it's good to go. That sounds just lovely. I really love that idea. Yeah. I want to amend my earlier statement. I think it's more complicated than an inner tube because the plastic dome that the stuff condenses against... It's not a hard plastic, like the whole thing is inflatable. So I think the reservoir inside doesn't just sit on the ocean. You have to blow water into it. There's like an auxiliary tube that you put salt water into it. And then there's another tube where the fresh water comes out. It doesn't matter. Okay. At this point. (laughs) It is what it is. Because it's too expensive to put on a Christmas list anyways. Exactly. So they gather up some pee. The mariner is disappointed in the amount of pee that Enola provided. He gives her a look. I don't know about you or our listeners, <laughs> but anytime that I have to collect urine for like a lab test or something, I always get way too much. And I feel like embarrassed about filling the cup up all the way. So I like pour half of it out. <laughs> Although I am well watered, so... <laughs> I have that moisture to get rid of. Yeah. They don't necessarily. No, they don't. So whatever quality of urine went into the filter, the mariner is able to test the quality of it. He takes a drink. Helen, sheepishly, it seems, asks for some. It's not for her. It's for Enola. And the mariner, typical mariner, really, he takes a bit more for himself pours a lot more than I expected him to into the tomato plant and then shoves the cup into Helen's hands afterwards. Yeah, he does give the plant a lot. I don't know. I think that really is just meant to tell us that he cares more about the plant than he does about Enola. But that pretty much brings us to the end of this episode. So come back next time. Enola will get pushed around. Helen will do some sewing. And the Mariner will discover that his boat has been vandalized. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, directed by Kevin Reynolds, and presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Ire by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is madmaxminute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at madmaxminute. And like us on Facebook by searching Mad Max Minute and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash madmaxmin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld episode 33. We'll see you next time.